Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Peter Straub, who died on September 4, 2022, at the age of 79, was a master of horror and supernatural fiction whose work erased any distinction between genre and the literary world. Among his best-known novels were Ghost Story, Shadowland, Floating Dragon, The Hellfire Club, and his collaboration with Stephen King, The Talisman. He was also a poet and short story author. On September 4, 1993, my late co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I sat down with Peter Straub in the KPFA studios at the height of his success as a best-selling author while he was on tour for the third volume of a trilogy, The Throat. I'd like to start by asking you a question that actually comes from from the lips of Donald Westlake. Uh-oh. Right. He, he <laughs> kind of he prompted us here, and he said that uh, one way to start, and something that you're fairly prepared to talk about, is how you began, moved into horror, and then moved out of horror. I have to point out that the bibliography you read omitted the early mainstream novels and poetry of Peter Straub. So maybe we can get him to talk about those. Sure. Okay. Well, so in other words, uh, it's my um, autobiography as a writer (laughs) in condensed form. I began writing fiction because I had always thought of myself as a novelist, really from adolescence on, with a sort of awful terror that I might be a novelist type, but with nothing to say. I got various graduate degrees and went to Dublin to work on a PhD. I was about 26, and I published a lot of poetry. It seemed to me that if I really were going to be a novelist, that it was now or never. And if I waited much longer, whatever ability I might innately have would just uh, wither away. So also, another odd thing happened. As I walked around Dublin sometimes, sentences would sort of zing through my head as if they'd been sent like arrows from another sphere and traveled on to yet another sphere. They were sentences about fictional people. They came from nowhere. The people themselves came from nowhere. So I thought this was a real signal that it was time to try to prove to myself that I could do what I thought I I might be able to do. So I sat down and I I wrote a novel essentially in about four months. I typed it up as we had to do in those days. I mailed it to a publisher and the publisher took it. I mean, that was immensely reassuring and confirming. It settled a great deal of anxiety that I had, except I had another anxiety immediately, which was, am I just a one-book novelist? I spent a long time writing another novel after that. That, that was The first one was called Marriages. The second was called Under Venus. Marriages was a very, very bad novel. It was uh, amateurish. Uh, it had no coherence. almost had no story. But who then published it and why? Howard McCann published it in America, and Andre Deutsch published it in England, and they published it because the writing was nice and because it was sort of an avant-garde novel, um, you know, kind of a 
pale, watery avant-garde novel. But that's a, they thought you were being experimental and you were really just being incoherent. No, I was being e- experimental, but uh, the experimentalism tended toward incoherence. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, I was sort of, I was very influenced by John Ashbery, whom I still love. Anyhow, I, I spent a lot of time writing a, a much longer, much better novel because marriages had dropped dead. The publishers who had taken it didn't want the second book, throwing me into immense despair. I labored and labored and labored over that book. Finally, he did the vice of my agent who said, Peter, write a gothic. Get out of that swamp you're in. So I, I thought about that for a time, and I, I paced around, and I came up with an idea that actually scared me. That, was the, that eventually became the book Julia. The, the second I started writing Julia, I knew that I'd found something new and good for me, which was uh, horror written as though... Um, there were no distinctions between mainstream novels and, jo- and genre novels. That w- in itself was a great relief for me. So I just sang like a bird. It, the, the book was easy to write. And what happened in that book is what's happened every time since, that accidents, uh, beautiful accidents happen. And I discover uh, startling bits of information in the middle of the book that seem to have been planned right from the start. This has been true ever since. Every time I've written a novel, unexpected, illuminating information arrives on the day that I need to know it. Could, could you give us an example of that? Well, in Julia, the example I mean is that it is discovered in the middle of the book that one character is the father of another character. And this adds a, a certain layer of evil, given the relationships, to the book. And it also is quite explanatory in the book. But it, it's, it's happened over and over and over. You continue doing this, and you hit the big time, the jackpot with yeah, Ghost Story. That's right. Uh, when I read Ghost Story, it was just at the start of the horror movement. King had just taken off. Mm-hmm. What I remember most about it was that it seemed fairly mundane, four old men sitting around talking, and slowly uh, a cold chill went up my spine as I realized what was going on. How did events in the middle of the book occur to you? Was it the same experiences with Julia? It was very much the same. The book is really complex, and it's, it seems to have been all planned out in advance, but very little was planned out in advance, uh, and the plan I had was eventually discarded. The way I really proceed now is to write very carefully and slowly at the start, despite the fact that I think I know what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm going to do. And eventually... If I remember everything I wrote at the beginning, these details are telling me where the book really wants to go. Little things I just put in whimsically or, or because uh, they announce themselves to me, these are the secret clues, the keys to the path that I'm supposed to take. Do you know the ending before you start the book? Almost never. Certainly not in The Throat. The, you know, The Throat is, a, is one of those books that actually ends on the last page, the final bit of information that helps clear up the last cloud or clear away the last cloud is contained virtually on the last page. Now, that seems, again, like a predestined act, but, but it wasn't, it, un, un, unless it was predestined in another sense, that the information was all there in the air pre-existing before I came to it, which, is sometimes, which sometimes seems to be the case. That's either a, a remarkable achievement or a lucky break, take your pick, because... So many books, it seems to me, as a reader, either go on too long uh-huh. after the story's over and the author just continues to babble, uh-huh. or on, on, on much less frequent occasions, but it does happen, they quit too soon, yeah. and you're left sort of hanging in midair. Right. 
endings are tremendously important to me. It seems to me, the way I, I, I read this often is, is the reverse of the way you do. Very, very often, I come to the end of a, what has been a, quite a satisfying book, and it ends too quickly. The guy, the guy rushes the climax. He doesn't take his time. Th- things aren't protracted enough. There's no, there's no music in the climax. There, there, there's a simple explosion, and that's it. That's a terrible disappointment. What I always want to really have there be end music. And so I don't want to disappoint the reader in that particular fashion by, by muffing the climax. And I, n- neither do I want to go on babbling at, at the end. The only time I ever did that was in Shadowland when I rolled back. At the end of the night, which I finished the book, I simply took about the last 10 pages and I ripped them out because I saw, I saw where the book really ended. Ghost Story has a very unusual ending in, in the fact that it isn't really a ghost story at all. That's why, right. Why the title? Oh, well, that's a good question. The title of that book always was Ghost Story. Probably the reason is that I did want to refer back to the, the thing that you'd mentioned earlier, the tradition of various people in a novel or a story sitting around and telling kind of spooky stories. I certainly wanted to refer back to the long tradition of horror short stories and ghost stories in, in American lit. That is, I wanted people to remember that Henry James had written them, that Edith Wharton had written them, that Hawthorne had. Part of my point was that this stuff need not be trashy because at that time in 19... I was probably right in 1977, uh, horror was still a kind of an inky, dirty little thing. Uh, it was sort of disgraceful. It, it would not have been reasonable to think that intelligent grown-ups of any sort would read it. I sort of wanted to shine a little light on that uh, and to prove that... Uh, or to indicate that at least one time it had been taken very seriously. The response to Ghost Story was incredible. Yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> it changed my life. Did you have any expectation, any hope that this would put you at the front rank of, if nothing else, horror novelists at the time? Yeah, well, I don't think I've ever, ever have been at the front rank. <laughs> On the other hand, I was very, very aware that Ghost Story, as I was writing Ghost Story, I was very, very aware that it was a much stronger book than anything I'd written before. And I also really did know that it was going to be much more successful. My horizons were low. So to me, uh, I thought I'd probably make about $100,000 out of that book. And I immediately scrambled around, talked to bankers, and see what I could do with a sum of, you know, such a huge sum. So I was completely unprepared, you know, for the actual figures as they happened. It's, it's obvious that you take horror fiction seriously. Mm-hmm. And I wonder then, if we think of all the different kinds of fiction that are out there, different forms of fiction, including mainstream, have different intellectual or social or emotional rewards that provide their justification for being. Uh-huh. What is this justification in horror fiction? Okay. Uh, firstly... A horror novel is a horror novel, and both terms are of equal weight. So part of the, the rewards one gets are the ordinary rewards you get from any decently written work of fiction. That is, you get uh, characterization, supple prose, uh, kind of uh, melody of meaning that runs through. There's uh, the satisfactions of structure, the beautiful apprehension of the physical world that you get when the writer uses the right words to describe it. Now, horror in itself, 
opens up a trapdoor on the floor of reality and lets out all those emotions that people generally don't want to encounter. That is fear, grief, pain, terror. These emotions are immensely valuable. As harrowing as they are, they help us keep our humanity. Without them, we're dogs. Without them, we're uh, Ronald Reagan on, on the golf green, you know. It's of real use. After Ghost Story, you went the distance with probably one of the grossest, most disgusting horror novels, mm -hmm. almost as if Which you would be say... be nice to our guest. <laughs> Come on. Oh, no, no. I mean, I don't think this is... He, he means it in a complimentary <laughs> <Yeah>. sense. <laughs> no, Floating Dragon is what I'm talking about. Precisely. Yes. And it's almost as if you were trying to out Stephen King, Stephen King. Oh, dear. No. I really was not. And in fact... I was very puzzled and almost enraged when I read reviews of Floating Dragon that said I was imitating Stephen King. I don't think that was it at all. At the time, what I thought I was doing was simply to try to go as far as I could in the direction of excess. During the time I was writing that, I said the principle of this book, the aesthetic principle of this book is excess. So I, I just put in every single thing I could think of. And so, some of these inventions were pretty good, and some might, might have been a little weak. But as a, as a whole, the book is this crazy phantasmagoria. It's this wonderful, to me anyhow, this wonderful explosion of imagery, which all, all the while anyhow is still underlain by um, actual real human feelings. To me, the ending of Floating Dragon is really, really good uh, because it's just loaded with the kind of regret, nostalgia, love, in the conversation between the, the principal woman, Patsy McLeod, and the old writer, who I, Graham something, his name escapes me now. But I, I remember writing that. I remember writing every word of that. It was late at night. I remember the feeling as though I was slightly floating above my desk a, a teeny bit because I was uh, so filled with the emotions that these people had. It was a deliberate act, and I think it was also an unconscious act because I think I was also trying to separate myself from horror by giving horror readers this what I thought was this glorious bouquet of every, every imaginable image, every imaginable sensation. Now, some of them really liked it, and some of them just hated it. Dick Lupoff. Mr. Straub, as, as a writer who straddles the mainstream and the genre writing communities, there's been a sort of long-standing hostility and mutual resentment between these communities, at least so it seems to me. Basically, the, the principle that I've heard a thousand times is, well, mainstream fiction is, is written better, but genre fiction tends to be more vigorous and filled with exciting, interesting ideas. Do you agree with that? Oh, no. I, I think any generalization like that is bound to fall apart as soon as it is ex examined case by case. Fiction is fiction foremost. Any bit of writing has to be judged on its own merits for the case it presents as a novel. There are great detective novels and absolutely crappy, undistinguished ones. There are great science fiction novels and really silly science fiction novels. There are great noble horror novels and ineffably stupid horror novels. <laughs> and the best ones are, ex seem to me, exactly the equivalent of really, really good mainstream novels. And to, to see it in any other way is to align yourself with a jealous, partisan little camp. 
And people in those camps cannot see out of them. They're too defensive. Before you came to this trilogy, you wrote one more book, and it was in collaboration with Stephen King, mm -hmm. and it was a fantasy called The Talisman. Right, right. How did that come about, and did you see that in your mind as almost a, a, a psychic sequel, if, if you will, to Shadowland, because it did involve kids? Oh, right. Um, actually, that had not occurred to me. It came about because um, Steve and I had become friends, and one night, late at night, when we were probably both a little potted, he suggested that we work together. And uh, I was uh, flattered and pleased, and it's, it seemed very exciting. So we had to wait uh, four years uh, to, to get out from under the contracts we already had. Uh, was there any more to your question? I don't remember. This is a psychic sequel theory. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, it was not. A, I, I didn't see it in, in that way at all. In fact, uh, we, didn't, we didn't say to each other, let's write a fantasy novel. I think we both assumed we were going to write a horror novel. And we had one tiny little idea, which was of this uh, boy who had to cross some unknown territory to get something. Initially, we thought, and bring it back. And as we developed this, generally in the course of long car travels, it turned into this uh, thing that was like a fantasy. And then before you knew it, it really was a kind of a traditional fantasy. And as we worked on it, working from a long, long, I think about 80-page single-space outline that I had typed up, we realized that if we had the kid go all the way to where he had to go to get the object and then to bring it back, we'd have a 9,000-page novel. <laughs> so we took out, uh, we cut off the back half, and then after we had about 200 pages written and we're about four pages in the outline, we cut off the last half of the first half. So <laughs> it's one quarter of a book. How did you actually write the book? Did you write a chapter? Did he? How did that happen? We started writing together side by side in the way that he would uh, sit down at my word processor, the thing I had then, and uh, write until he uh, sort of ran out of steam or wanted to give me a break. And then he stood up and, uh, and I sat down and did the same. After that, he went back to Maine. I stayed in Connecticut where I lived then. And uh, we used modems to send the pages back and forth at the end. I'm, so that was the bulk of the time, two years. We did it that way. And at the end, I went to his house, and we repeated the performance uh, of the beginning. He sat down. He rattled off 20 pages in some breathtakingly short space of time. I sat down, and I agonized over five pages. <laughs> you went from somewhat horror to gross-out horror to mm. fantasy horror, and then with Coco, you come out the other side. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how that came about, why you moved in this new direction? Sure, I can. That was a very important uh, time in my life. I did think that I could not write straightforward horror in the way it was conventionally seen after Floating Dragon and the Talisman. I was tired of it. I'd done everything I could do, and if I'd continued to work with that kind of imagery, I would have just repeated myself. And so it seemed, that seemed like a kind of death. I had a simple little idea. I had another book to go on my contract. And the idea seemed almost too simple. That is, that various guys who had been in Vietnam in the same platoon have to go to, back to the Far East to rescue one of their own who'd gone off the rails. It sounded a little bit tacky, but I wanted to see what was in it. So I took a long, long time about a year, and that year, I th some of the time I thought about it and some of the time I didn't, but I really just let it simmer, and every now and then I made notes for it. 
once I started in earnest on that book, I began to understand what I was doing, which was to write a horror novel without horror in it, to write a novel that really gave as much latitude as I could to those sorts of emotions that I described earlier. That is to really let grief come in. Now, grief was essential to me at that time because my mother, who had had Alzheimer's for a, a dreadful, hideous period of 15 years, had just died. Even though her death was a blessing, it was still a tremendous sorrow and loss. So I was awake as far as grief was concerned. I could see it, and then I could see it all over the place, especially in Vietnam veterans, because it is possible to feel grief for yourself when you've lost an earlier version of yourself. Had you been in Vietnam? No, no, I was not. I met many veterans just before I started writing Coco, and I could tell, even before they, it was told me or they told me, that, that they were Vietnam veterans because they had a certain quality that was like an aura, which I recognized. I recognized it because of childhood trauma. Uh, it seems to me all trauma is roughly equivalent. Anyhow, I sort of had the courage or maybe the nerve to think that I understood some of their experience. And that experience seemed to me to be of unbelievable richness. Mystery was the next. Now, at the time, did you connect Mystery as a sequel to Coco? No, not at all. When I started Mystery, I wanted to write a kind of Daphne du Maurier novel about two brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. Daphne Pardon Mar- me. Are you cracking Don't me Don't you up? love Rebecca? I mean, I love Rebecca. Yes. I love indeed. The House on the Strand. Uh, I, I wanted to write a book about two brothers, w- one of them raised in kind of luxurious circumstance and the other raised in a shed out in back of a, a hovel. Uh, so one is pampered, one is tortured. The tortured one is angry, and sooner or later he gets out. Now, I wrote that book, and only it turned into something else. <laughs> right at the start, while I was still dealing with the brother, the brother in the shed, a character w- strolled on the stage an old detective named Lamont von Heilitz, a sort of Sherlock Holmes figure. And the more I looked at this guy, the more I realized that he was the actual center of the book. He kept jumping up in the air and saying, me, me, (laughs) look at me. And uh, I realized that I had to get rid of the brother in the shed, that the book was about the psychic setup that makes somebody become a great detective. There's a hidden metaphor that has to do with art, that is... There are no accidents. People become the things they become for reasons uh, that have to do with uh, the way they were raised and the things that they endured. It may be simple-minded, but I suppose the basic premise is that you become a great detective because there's something to find out. And uh, both Lamont von Heilitz and uh, the kid who who turns out to be his natural son, Tom Passmore, become Sherlock Holmesian figures because... There's a deep, deep secret that the point of their lives of which is to discover. The title of the book was Mystery. Right. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Question for you about that. Uh, How did people respond to using a generic title again, as you did with Ghost Story? Yeah. Some people alluded to that. It didn't seem to disturb them. The reason I called it Mystery was that mystery has two meanings. Mystery is a pun. There's awe, majesty, and mystery. And there's mystery as in Sherlock Holmes. It seemed to me that I could make some gorgeous noise if I slammed those two symbols together. Peter Straub, we've come, I guess, to your next book, which suddenly seems to make the previous books as inner layers of an onion, which they weren't intended to be. That's right. 
how did it come to pass that suddenly the two books were interrelated in the third book? That happened because I realized that there was a big question unresolved. The only thing that connected the throat and mystery, apart from certain themes and feelings, was a book that I had invented. The book was called A Divided Man by Tim Underhill, who is one of the characters in Coco and does not appear at all in mystery except as the author of that book. The Divided Man is about an old murder case uh, involving what were called the Blue Rose Murders. The Blue Rose Murders were falsely solved. In mystery, we, we learn who really killed a certain person who was supposed to be the Blue Rose murderer. So we know that the case was never really solved. So that meant there was still this question in the air of who did that. So that gave me a tiny little wedge into a new book. The more I thought about it, the more I thought that I wanted to write a book that would really swallow up both Coco and Mystery, that, that would kind of ingest them. That's not why I call it The Throat, but, <laughs> but, it, uh, <laughs> but it, it might as well be. So I, I like the metaphor of the onion because that's exactly what it is. Both those other books are kind of concealed inside The Throat, though they're all independent and you don't have to have read uh, the other two to read any of the one of them. The Throat shows me that you have a sort of intellectual immersion in popular culture, such, such things as uh, Clifford Brown's music, which I, I share your enthusiasm. Oh, good. <laughs> and uh, mention of Arkham College, which is a wonderful, slightly <laughs> arcane device. Yeah. Mention of Ida Lupino, with whom <laughs> I've been in love since 1941, and so forth. great, right. I, and, of course, the von Heilitz aspect uh, with reference to whether it's a Sherlock Holmes, which is a shadow of Pulp Magazine yeah, famous. Right. Uh, <laughs> talk about that, please, and your relationship to these mass culture icons of our of our century. I'd also like to throw in uh, a reference in the middle of the book to, it appears to be, the ending of Apocalypse Now. Yeah, and, 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 and through Apocaly Apocalypse Now, it goes back to the Heart of Darkness by Conrad. Um, well, the reason for all this stuff is that this is the stuff I grew up with, I guess. And, and so for me, it's loaded with emotion. When I think of Ida Lupino, I also think of Alan Ladd, William Bendix, Richard Widmark. I think of uh, essentially black and white movies in the neighborhood theater and an aura of glamour, danger, doom. Those things are very powerful. All the rest of these illusions uh, also come from childhood, the shadow. The uh, references to the shadow in the throat also come from childhood because uh, I used to listen to all these radio dramas at what must have been kind of the end of that era when I was a kid. Anyhow, all of these things are filled with sort of the uh, uh, smoky, mysterious emotions of childhood and consequently, you know, for me have a big emotional wallop. But you indicated to me that uh, you don't consider this Mass culture in any sense of being kitsch or trivial. Oh, absolutely not. What does it mean then? Well, in the case of Clifford Brown, it means great, noble, majestic art. In the case of some of the uh, films noir, it uh, means the same thing. It's a kind of expression that is generous and uh, filled with feeling. Another aspect of the throat is the intermixture in very, very thinly disguised form of a major real-world tragedy, which, which happened, I believe it was in Milwaukee. It was in it Milwaukee, not? that's right. And, and your, your, your fictitious city of, of Mil Mil Haven. Mil Haven is pretty clearly Milwaukee. It's based it? on Milwaukee, okay. sure. Okay. 
within the past year, we have had the, the terrible tragedy of Jeffrey Dahmer and his victims, mm-hmm. which turns up in the throat. Mm-hmm. Why is it there? What's the purpose of that in this book? Uh, I'm glad you asked that because the answer is a very, very strange one. I spent a lot of time in the first year when I was working on the throat thinking about what would make, what set of circumstances would create uh, a serial killer. And I read a lot of books about it and I just thought about it. This is well before the appearance of Dahmer. I wrote two long sections that were later removed. They were in the first person. They were about the childhood of Fee Bandelier, Fielding Bandelier, who, who later grows up to be a very nasty character indeed. Fielding Bandelier was a product of Millhaven or Milwaukee. He was, uh, in this case, raised in Ohio, where he killed several people. And then he went to Vietnam, where he went off the tracks and then came back to Milwaukee or Millhaven, where he began to murder people. I had imagined the childhood of this character. And then Jeffrey Dahmer appeared. And he, he was Fee Bandelier. His, his, his career track was the same. He, he'd, uh, he, you know, his, his deeds were the same. So I was just riveted. I'm no megalomaniac, and so I didn't think I had created Jeffrey Dahmer, but I had certainly created his alter ego or someone very, very like him, and I'd put him in the right places. So I, I couldn't keep my eyes off Jeffrey Dahmer, and I virtually had to put him in the book. So I wrote these, uh, uh, these passages. Uh, the, the character's named Walter Dragonet, and he's kind of a red herring. The chapters that were the motive for the Walter Dragonette chapter uh, are no longer in the book. But it seems to me that their feeling is still there, that uh, anybody who reads The Throat carefully knows just exactly what Fee Bandelier's father was like, Bob Bandelier, and can reconstruct that childhood. And if the reader can't imagine that, he'll be able to read those two chapters because they did stand alone when I took them out. And Tom Monteleone is going to put them in the Borderlands 4 anthology, and I'm very pleased with it. Now you've written The Throat, and this seems to solve all of it. Is this the end of the trilogy, or, or, are, we, <laughs> are, we going, <laughs> or are we going to see another onion layer? No, this is it. Uh, while I was writing it, I, I was uh, conscious that I was really wrapping this up and, and, and that it would come to a kind of closure. And it, it's, it's a little scary because that's been my imaginative world since about 1984, which is a good long time, I had kind of embraced Tim Underhill, and he was my alter ego. And so I felt a kind of regret. At the same time, I felt a satisfaction of working with him, let's say. I felt a regret that I wouldn't be able to work with him once the book was done, and also a kind of relief that I'd be able to write about other people now again. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do, but uh, the Blue Rose business is certainly finished. If we could get back to Dragonette just for a moment, because I think we right. moved away from that rather abruptly. What struck me about Walter Dragonette in the book and and seeing Jeffrey Dahmer right there on CNN right. uh, as, as it was happening is uh, that this this man is, is not a, a ravening monster with, with fangs. Absolutely. He doesn't look like Mr. Hyde. Right. He, in fact, he was a, a very polite, Seemingly intelligent, uh, mm-hmm. soft-spoken, and well-spoken mm-hmm. young man. That if I didn't know better, uh, I, I would let my daughter go to the dance with him. Sure, that's right. Remarkable. Isn't it? I, I can't come to terms with that, and, and yeah. I hope maybe you will help me do so. 
Well, in a way, I thought Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most reasonable people in that courtroom, uh, at least to go by demeanor and the, the way he conducted himself and, the, and, and his final statement. He was one of the more articulate people in that courtroom, certainly to, to judge by his final statement. I felt tremendous pity for Jeffrey Dahmer, and I didn't see much of that in the world. It seemed to me that to have done such outré, bizarre, uh, and savage things, one must really be in a kind of perpetual hell. And as people testified about what Dahmer imagined of himself and what he made of what he himself was doing, it did seem that he was in a kind of torment. I don't think Jeffrey Dahmer was at all in contact with his real feelings, which must have been so, some kind of unimaginable rage. The, the torment consisted of thinking that he was evil. He'd watched that dopey Exorcist Three movie over and over and over in a kind of trance, nodding to the television, speaking back to it. Uh, this is a man in a kind of a dream, really. Jeffrey Dahmer had this terrible separation problem, which he could not figure out how to solve. So he solved it in this efficient, brutal, simple-minded fashion. I think Jeffrey Dahmer, at some point when Jeffrey Dahmer was a child, somebody should have taken him aside and patted him on the back, given him a bowl of soup, and said, Jeffrey, talk to me. You seem a little distant. <laughs> what in the world is going on with you? He, he could have been rescued, but nobody paid attention. Jeffrey Dahmer, Vietnam, serial killing, um, the protests involving uh, a real character that you bring into the throat named Al Sharpton. <laughs> right. oh, well. Are you just telling a story or are you saying something about America? I'm certainly telling a story. I would also like to think that I'm saying something about America, but even more, something about existence. You mentioned Al Sharpton. It was kind of funny. A friend of mine read uh, a manuscript of The Throat, and he called me up and he said, I'm really mad at you. You put Al Sharpton in that book, and that's like a needle in the reader's eye. He said, you're not one of those kind of writers. You're not like Tom Wolfe, uh, and you don't depend on brand names to, to get your point across. Uh, anyhow, I put in Al Sharpton just because it seemed to me that Al Sharpton would show up there. What I'm trying to do with all these things, however, is to present a kind of emotional experience that um, I think is my own capacity. It's what I'm here to do, is to give in, uh, in fictional, you know, metaphoric form a very, very complex experience, which is my own and which no one else can do. I mean, I, I, I have my own little song, and I'm, and I'm trying to sing it. And so it'll go straight into the reader's ear. This is a, when I say a complicated emotion, I mean that it mingles really profound joy with really profound sadness. It makes a kind of sandwich when, the, when they're put together. And I wish to communicate that am amalgam of feeling to the reader. And now that you have completed this, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say, truly monumental project of, of cocoa mystery uh -huh. and the throat is this time, you know, just to lay back for a year or two and recharge your batteries, or, or do you have another project that's calling to you? Well, there is something I'd like to do. I did take more time off than I normally do. So by the time I'm supposed to be out peddling a book and doing interviews, in the past I've always had to say, I can't because I have to finish what I'm doing. And, and I say to the publishers, you want this book to be written more than you want me to uh, go on the road. However, there is a little thing that's buzzing in my head now, and it has to do with Jeffrey Household and Rogue Mail. I want to see what I can uh, do with that kind of theme. 
Before we close, I'd like to mention a, a dirty word, Hollywood. You've had two, <laughs> I believe, of your books translated into film, um, not too successfully. Yeah, Julia and Ghost Story. That's right. They were both kind of mistreated. Julia was a, a very, very low-budget film, and and probably because of that, it turned out better than this, you know, Megabucks movie, Ghost Story, which was a complete mishmash. But it did have one good half hour in it, I thought. But uh, in general, they, they took out my engine and put in this cheesy little Volkswagen engine and destroyed it. Which is a shame because it was the final film of Melvin Douglas and Fred Astaire. And Fred Astaire, that's right. My heart heats up at the thought of those two people being in, in a movie made for my book, but I wish they'd been treated a little better. Uh, any interest in uh, any of the three recent books? They're much too complicated. They, are, they wander all over the map. They, they don't progress in a straight line, though the throat almost progresses in a straight line. But there's, the emotions are too complex, and the story itself is too complex. No American movie studio is going to make a film in which it's implied that we might feel sorrow for a figure other people regard as a monster. Three years after the interview in 1996, Peter Straub's novel The Hellfire Club was published to great acclaim. It was followed in 2001 with Black House, a sequel to The Talisman written with Stephen King, and then four later novels. The last one, A Dark Matter, was published in 2010. A third book in the Talisman series was announced, but never written. A television series based on the Talisman for Netflix and created by the Duffer Brothers of Stranger Things was announced in 2021 and thus far is apparently still on track. You've been listening to an interview with the late Peter Straub, who died on September 4, 2022, at the age of 79. It was recorded on April 4, 1993, in the KPFA studios, while he was on tour for his novel, The Throat. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. This interview was digitized and edited in September 2022 and has not been heard in nearly 30 years. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>